a Cleveland Jewish News production. How would you introduce your mom to someone? I would say, hi, this is my mom. This is the nicest, kindest person you'll ever meet in your entire life. When we talk about Eliza Sherman today, it evokes an acute sense of loss. Rightfully so. She was murdered in broad daylight 10 years ago in downtown Cleveland. Left behind were four children, three brothers, her mother, and countless close friends. All of them thought the world of Eliza. The emptiness deepens when we're reminded that the case remains unsolved. Not only has her killer not been caught, no suspects have been named. It's devastating. But that loss and its aftermath don't tell the whole story. In fact, they offer only a glimpse. My mom just loved making people happy. It was just like the most easy, obvious thing to do. Like if there was something to be done and she knew it would make my friend smile, like she would do it. It wasn't even like a second thought. That's Elisa's son, Jason. To learn who she was before that tragic day in 2013 is to first immerse yourself in Elisa's brand of kindness, generous, unwavering, principled. Her daughter Jennifer says Elisa's warmth and big-heartedness were woven into the fabric of her being. I would just say in general, she was someone who, whether she had known you her whole life or met you five seconds ago, she was willing to give you the shirt off her back and help you. Um, I think she was one of the few people I've come across on this earth that genuinely did things out of the goodness of her heart with zero expectation of anything in return. And it's something I try to keep at the forefront of my mind every single day and just make it a part of how I live and interact with people in this world. That's the Eliza Sherman many know, maybe none better than her children. For many others, her name is associated only with tragedy. Beachwood nurse, on the verge of a disputed divorce trial, stabbed 11 times and left for dead on the sidewalk. Those are facts too, of course. But the truth is more complicated and more interesting. I'm Sarah Shookman. And I'm Mike Butts. This is Aliza, her story at 10 years, a Cleveland Jewish News podcast about Aliza Sherman's life, loss, and legacy. Welcome to episode one. Sarah and I are both journalists who for years reported on the Eliza Sherman case. Sarah covered the story for WKYC 3 News, the NBC affiliate here in Cleveland, where she was a reporter and anchor for a decade. And I covered it for the Cleveland Jewish News, or CJN as it's known, an independent weekly newspaper that reports on Northeast Ohio's Jewish community. Mike and I got used to meeting people on the worst day of their lives, if you can get used to such a thing. At first, loved ones of Eliza Sherman were no different. What's changed over the last decade beyond our day jobs is how close we became to the friends and family of Eliza through attending vigils, rallies, and even courtroom proceedings. Over the course of several episodes, we're going to dig deep into Eliza's life and her death. We'll examine her nursing career and care for her patients. We'll look at how the investigation into her killer went cold and where it stands right now. 10 years later. And we'll dive into her lasting legacy, how she's inspiring change, 
and how a fund in her name is supporting that change for individuals throughout Cleveland, Ohio, Aliza's hometown. The manner in which Aliza died pales to the manner in which she lived. We want to explore the ways she made and continues to make a difference in people's lives. We never got to meet Aliza. So for this podcast series, that's how we'd like to start. At the beginning, with Aliza, the darling little sister. Albert and Doris Zinn owned a small house in Cleveland Heights on the south side of Severn Road, just east of South Taylor Road, a main thoroughfare in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. They were Holocaust survivors who fled Europe to start their lives over in a new country. They had three sons, Harry, Steve, and Ed. Then, in September of 1959, they welcomed their first and only daughter. I remember when Elisa was born, and... and I think my parents really wanted a girl. This is Elisa's brother, Steve. Perhaps that's why after three rowdy boys, they decided to try one more time. And they were just very, very proud, very excited when Elisa was born. And she was special. Albert and Doris fostered a close-knit family. They lost their mother, father, and siblings during the Holocaust which influenced their parenting and kept the Zinn family very close. They also worked hard to provide for their family. Albert co-owned a mini supermarket, C&Z, on Cleveland's east side with one of Elise's uncles. Not long after the nearby Huff riots of 1966, the duo left the business and purchased Mill Tavern in Highland Heights. Albert later took on management roles at Davis Bakery and Unger's Kosher Bakery and Food Shop. Doris was a stay-at-home mom, but for a time worked as a seamstress at Albert Furs in Mayfield Heights, Eastgate Plaza. Aliza's brother, Ed, recalls their mom's handiwork. Let's put it this way. We had a very modest upbringing, but you wouldn't have known it. As I pointed out, my mother used to take, get patterns and make dresses for Elise. In fact, that picture Harry showed you, I'm pretty sure that was a, one of mom's dresses. My mother was, a, was an excellent seamstress. Aliza and Ed were born only 14 months apart, years younger than their two brothers. Their childhood spanned the 1960s and early 70s, a period of commercial and population growth in Cleveland Heights. It wasn't uncommon for the Zinn siblings to cut through their neighbors' backyards to get to the newly opened Severn Center. We used to go out on Sundays to like Zares or, or the you know or Uncle Uncle Bill's, you know those big shopping centers that the, the precursor to, to Target. And I used to be always with my with my mother in a basket, and Elisa was always with my father in a basket. This was how our outing was as a family. We'd go to the big store on Sunday, or sometimes we'd end up going to Franklin's Ice Cream or, or Mr. Donut and getting a donut as a family. And, uh, you know, usually Elisa was in the front seat with my parent, with my mo- mother and father on both sides, and I was stuck in the middle of Harry and Steve in the back. Elisa was a bright young girl, imaginative, precocious, charming, savvy. Whenever Albert and Doris brought home a treat, it would invariably end up in Elisa's hands. She was often the center of attention, and her brother Ed describes her as the star of the family wherever they went. But one quality of Elisa stood out among the rest, even at a young age, a quality that everyone who would meet her over the years would admire and appreciate, her kind-heartedness. She was always, even as a little girl, always always looked out for other people. She was the, the type of person that, that 
that if she saw someone that was kind of having a down day, she'd go out of her way to give them, to make them feel better. I know that like if, if we had, if someone gave her a lollipop, she'd make sure that I got one and I'd make sure that she got one. The best thing that I can remember about her is if, that she always, she was out, always out there trying to make someone feel better about, about themselves. If they, were, if they were feeling bad, she'd, she'd find a way to twist it and turn it and make it into a positive. And when you walked away from Elisa, you felt, you felt a lot better um, than you did before you started. Her nurturing nature was evident as a child, too. As an adult, Elisa became a labor and delivery nurse and later an in vitro fertilization nurse, helping families to be grow. She would also become a doting mother of four herself. Roles in which she cared for other people, especially children, were her calling from an early age. You know, as a, as a young, as a teen, she and another girl, a friend of hers named Susie, started a summer camp for little children. And, you know, back, right in, the back, in our backyard where parents would drop their kids off and they would have arts and crafts. And, and she always took a liking to children and to dogs and to animals. We had a dog named Jeannie, and she used to make give Jeannie nicknames, you know, that, that I still use today on my own dog. It turns out that inspiring change is something Eliza was always meant to do. It says in Proverbs, a good name is more desirable than great riches. At least my older brother and I, we were, we were pretty rowdy, and we were not the best students at school. But Elisa rehabilitated the Zen name. She brought back the good name because there was no one who could not like Elisa. There was no one who could interact with her at any age and not come away impressed. And she was gifted in that way. Elisa grew up to become a nurse. It's one of the first words people use to describe her. Those who knew her best tell us it was a defining characteristic. Her daughter Jen recalls. She knew, she always said she had a nurse Nancy doll at three years old and knew she was going to be a nurse. Um, she was, you know, a caretaker in every sense of the word. She, she cared so much about others, you know, put others before herself all the time and, and would truly just do anything for anyone. Eliza was accepted into Case Western Reserve's nursing program, but couldn't afford it. Her daughter Jen later got to live that dream. Instead, Eliza lived at home with her parents and attended the three-year program at the Huron School of Nursing. This is her brother, Ed. She locked into children early on. And, and you know, she went in, as you know, or many people know, she started off as an OB nurse. And uh, she, um, how, you know, worked in, in labor and delivery and helped a lot of mothers bring uh, babies into this world. And, uh, you know, that was her calling, really. After graduating in 1981, she took a job at the now no longer Mount Sinai Hospital in Cleveland's University Circle neighborhood. The hospital was established in the early 1900s to serve the city's Jewish population and because anti-Semitism prevented Jewish doctors from practicing elsewhere. By the 1980s, the hospital was treating much of the city's poor population of all religions. I met Eliza. We were working together at Mount Sinai in the delivery room, and I was there several years probably, and then Eliza uh, came on and we became friends. Maria Zoll met Eliza in the trenches, or the hole as they called it, 
tough work, long hours, but they found a way to laugh. You know, delivery room was hard. And when we'd get a, you know, a tough patient, she was always there and doing a phenomenal job. And um, so we just connected. I, I just admired her and she was so kind and generous and the sick, we, we called it a sixth sense of humor. We just, you know, we'd look at something, you know, we just burst out laughing. We knew what we each were thinking. And uh, she was priceless. And, you know, everybody loved her. And she always took on the most difficult patients. She'd be in charge and she would um, assign herself the hardest things or what someone else maybe wouldn't want. And everybody really loved Elisa. Her friends knew her habits, her favorite sources of sustenance, chocolate, candy, Diet Coke, and Snapple, gossip rags, and shopping as stress relief. I'm addicted to peanuts, and she used to bring me peanuts all the time. She brought me, you know, those planter peanuts bottles. If she saw that going down low, I'd have the next day the new, new bottle would be there for peanuts. That's Dr. James Goldfarb. His groundbreaking career in in vitro fertilization started at Mount Sinai. And then while we were there, we had the first uh, IVF uh, pregnancy in Ohio. And then we also had the first IVF surrogate pregnancy in the whole world while we were at Mount Sinai. It was at Cleveland Clinic that he hired Eliza for the second time, and not for peanuts. Eliza was a compassionate and dedicated colleague. There's nobody that I've worked with in, in any of my career that I, that I respect more than her. Um, and, uh, you know, she, did, she deserves respect, that's for sure. And she's... The last person who deserved what she what what happened to her, I remember she literally she she not she, she rolled up her sleeves. She used to with, with her scrub suit. She actually rolled up her sleeves every day, and, and and I think it was I'm not sure she did it for image or what or more comfort, but it really sort of supported her image that she's a hard worker and she she rolls up her sleeves and gets into the nitty gritty of everything that's going on. It didn't depend on her people who were working with her to do that. You know, the patients knew that she cared about them. And she really did. It wasn't a, wasn't an act with her. She really cared about people. And she remembered everybody. You know, people came back the second time. She would remember what happened the first time. She was just an ideal, ideal person to be working with these stressed patients. And her generosity was well known. With Dr. Goldfarb, it was peanuts. For Maria, it was supporting her love of dogs. Those who have followed coverage of Eliza's case might recognize Maria because her golden retriever is always by her side during memorial events. Yes, we all, she always showered me with gifts. You know, she'd call you and, well, I was driving by and I left a package on your front porch, you know, it was snowing and it was Christmas time and there's like tons of gifts. And so, you know, in a bag, half my... So much of my wardrobe was Eliza. You know, I'd, she'd get me cute little dog shirts and paw shirts, and I'd wear them to school when I was teaching. And She was constantly buying you gifts of that, you know, that she knew would make you happy. Constantly. If she saw something while she was out shopping for herself or her family, she would say, oh, Mary would love that and surprise you with it. That's Eliza's longtime friend, Mary Fuhrer. I met Elisa in 1990. Um, we were at the Beechwood Park, and I had my daughter, who was three at the time, her daughter, Jen, who was three at the time, and I uh, had my son, who was two, Sam, 
and she had Jason, who was one. And we were at the Beechwood Park, immediately met each other's eyes and became instant one of my best friends while my kids were young. Just wonderful. We, um, from that day on, we talked all the time, every day. Connecting with people was at the core of who Aliza was. Not only did she form bonds with her patients, but she built deep and lasting friendships. Mary is one example. Jan Lash, another. Aliza considered Jan the sister she always wanted but never had. They first met at the start of a new journey, motherhood. Well, I met Aliza um, at a Lamaze class, her first Lamaze class. Um, we were pregnant with our first uh, two children. And um, we went around a circle and talking about ourselves. And um, I mentioned uh, my due date. We talked about that. And um, we kept going around the circle. And her due date was the same. And we looked at each other. It just couldn't believe we had the same due date. And um, I found out that she was a labor and delivery nurse. And I was a little worried about labor and delivery. And um, we got to talking, and from then on, it was 28 years of um, sisterhood, friendship. Those two boys were born within hours of each other in the same hospital. It was 1985, and it ended when she was murdered. And I talked to her every day, and um, I just tried to be supportive during those years. After Eliza married Sanford Sherman in 1982, her four children became her primary focus. She left her career to care for her young kids. She was happiest when we were with our kids together, when we were all together with the kids. Yeah. And so many times I was outside at a park where there were swings and things, and we would sit and talk, and, she, and the kids would, would play. And um, those were our happiest moments. She was just a, an amazing human being, and um, she helped me through a lot of tough times that I had had uh, early in my child-raising years. And, um, and I always appreciate that, and of course I wanted to be there for her when she had her problems. Jan was one of the last people to talk with Eliza on March 24th, 2013. For decades, Aliza's friends were concerned about her well-being. We'll explore this more in future episodes, but her marriage eroded her confidence. In the past years, I was very worried about her. And uh, I hate to say it, but I had like this premonition of something happening to her that I would one day be talking about what happened to her like this. And... I don't know. That's kind of eerie. I remember us yeah. discussing. I mean, we all were worried about her. Everybody was Everybody, worried. Yeah. Or, you know, her neighbors, her friends, we were all worried about her. Her friends say Eliza never wanted to burden anyone. If anything, perhaps she was too caring for her own good. This is Dr. Goldfarb again. She would never believe, you know, that, that people weren't like her. <laughs> she thought everybody was like her. She really was. She was just uh, the least least cynical of people that I know. Part of that was, I think part of that was just she's so trusting. She could never believe anybody would hurt anybody. 
chocolate, Tootsie Rolls and Rolos, flowers, purple tulips in particular, iced tea with extra lemons, animals of any kind, but dogs the most, sunshine and Neil Diamond. These were all Elisa's favorites. It seems motherhood was her greatest love, and her children, she called them her greatest accomplishments. She posted on Facebook, When I look at them, I know I contributed something wonderful to this world. She did it all. I honestly wish she was here so I could say, how did you do this? Like, where did you get the energy to do this? Because she had twice as many kids as I do. And she was like superwoman, truly. She could do it all. And had a smile on her face and she was she just was there for every single event every single project and she was super creative you know anything birthday parties when we got sick I mean anything we ever needed Sanford and Eliza had four children Josh Jennifer Jason and Jeremy her third born Jason describes the Sherman home growing up it was me I had an older brother uh, an older sister and a younger brother. So there were four of us and my mom, and my dad, and we were like a pretty, I don't know, run of the mill, mill household. My mom was just sort of the person that did everything for us. She, she took us to school every day. She picked us up from school every day. She cleaned the house. She cooked every meal. She went to all of our sporting events and concerts and all of those things, like literally just Anything you needed, anyone needed, she would be there. And The family settled in a two-story, five-bedroom house on tree-lined Penhurst Drive in Beechwood, about four miles from where Eliza grew up and a stone's throw away from Hilltop Elementary School. It had a big yard and plenty of space for a growing family. Jason considered it middle-class suburbia. While not everything in life was defined by their religion, they were active in the Jewish community, members of Green Road Synagogue. The kids attended small, private Jewish day schools in Cleveland's east side suburbs. Their home was often a cheerful place for family and friends to visit. Describe your house on Shabbat for us. Friends, you know, friends of ours as the kids, her brother and our cousins, my aunt and uncle. Um, truly even friends of hers that were not Jewish that she introduced I feel like she was just a very inclusive person. She was very um, sensitive to others and never wanted anyone to feel excluded. But I think she also found great joy in bringing people together. It was like a perfect example of who my mom was as a person. So I would have six, seven, eight friends come over every single Saturday. And my mom knew every single one of their favorite foods, like their favorite snack foods, their favorite desserts, like everything, their favorite meals. And every time she knew they were coming over, she would have all of that like laid out on the table in abundance. And like, she looked forward to all of that stuff. And it was just a nice, like my friends still joke about it all the time, but it was just like a really nice atmosphere. And that, and then just, again, it's just what she, my mom loved. Like she looked forward to it more than anyone just to make people happy. was like what made her happy. And that's just who she was. Like just seeing the joy of like my friends when they'd see like through roll-ups and things like that. Judging from appearances, it was an idyllic life. However, tensions brewed under the surface. Uh, I mean, no household was perfect. Like everything I just said makes it seem like we were some sitcom show. Like my parents never really got along that well. Uh, they argued a lot. Like I have lots of memories from when I was a couple of years old, uh, just like with my parents arguing. And, you know, I just assumed that was normal. And 
it was probably not till I was older that I realized like not all of my friends' parents do things like that. Records would later show Beachwood police had been out to the house nearly two dozen times over the years for reports of domestic disturbances. You'll hear more about that later in the series. But for a long time, Aliza persevered. She remained in the home despite the fighting and her fears, in part because of how much she valued family, a quality that, along with her kindness and generosity, was proven important by her actions. Where did that come from? Likely her own family. Those who knew her best believe her kindness and generosity were inspired by her father, Albert. He was somebody my mom always said, you know, they were not wealthy. He worked multiple jobs and barely made ends meet, but he always found a way to still somehow give to charity. And I think that really spoke to her. And I think he probably really had an impact on her. She was a big daddy's girl. He was just like the kindest, most gentle person and like would do, and my grandma obviously too, but like would do everything for anyone. And just I heard from my uncles all the time. Like, yeah, like, you know, she was daddy's little girl and all these things. And like, they're just very similar. So I don't, I don't know, she was raised right, I guess. As a child, Aliza had a special bond with her father. But as a mother, her closest relationship might have been with her daughter, Jen. Their mother-daughter bond was unbreakable and in many ways defining. And it was a relationship that Jen treasured. She was my mother, but she was so much more than that. You know, she was truly my soulmate. Um, I think she knew me better than I knew myself, for sure. And she just, she's my best friend in the whole world. She was my role model. I always looked at her like she was my hero, and she inspired me in, in my life in many ways. When do you remember the closeness starting? Probably from birth. <laughs> um, I, I truly have been a mama's girl since day one. Um, I think that we were we had a, a friendship and and such respect for each other. I feel like it was constantly just throwing um, you know compliments back and forth to each other, like "No, you're great. No, you're great," you know. And so I think we we were always very aware of how much we appreciated and cherished each other. Jen and Eliza were at times inseparable. Even after Jen moved out for college, they spoke daily. They shared hobbies, clothes, secrets. We did everything together, <laughs> um, literally everything. Um, we loved to go for walks. She was a big, big advocate of exercise, being outside in the sun. Um, we, we would go shopping. We would, honestly, some of my best moments were truly just we would, when I was younger, she would have like a supposed sleepover with me where she'd lay in my room and, and tell me stories about her being a nurse. She taught me a lot about life in the conversations we shared. So I think just probably I cherish the most just our, our conversations. She's always so positive and brought so much light. How did you know when she was hurting? I do think we always had a connection. Um, there were many times I, like, I would just not even be living at home but had like a concern about her. without even, And then I would call her. And I probably knew her better than she knew herself, too. So I knew when something was wrong. But she also, you know, would we told each other everything. She would share her worries and concerns. Jen was Aliza's confidant. But at times, Aliza said things more openly that, looking back, ominously and tragically 
foreshadowed what was to come. She loved taking pictures. Uh, she used to always say when we were kids, like, oh yeah, you should take pictures because like, she would just say things like, who knows how long we'll all be together. Today, Jen drives the Justice for Aliza movement. In addition to her efforts to keep the case in the public eye, which could help track down her mother's killer, she also works to amplify Aliza's legacy, which we'll learn more about later in this series. Outside of those efforts, Jen is married and a mother herself. Among the many things taken away by her mother's murder is that Jen's children must grow up without Aliza as their grandmother. It's hard. It's hard to be a new mom without your own mom, especially her as a mother, because she she was just the best. I mean, I know I'm biased because she was mine, but um, I think she instilled in me a lot of life lessons and, and you know, pieces of important information that I could carry with me in the future that I do, you know, refer back to now. As for her career, Jen followed in her mother's footsteps and became a nurse practitioner. Jason also followed Eliza's lead. He's a pediatrician at the Cleveland Clinic's Beechwood Family Health Center, where Eliza worked for many years as an in vitro fertilization nurse. He's also engaged to be married this month. We said at the outset, we never met Eliza, but in some ways we have. We've experienced her warmth and big-heartedness through her friends. Her kindness, welcoming nature, and strong will are exhibited by Jason and Jen. I think the biggest thing she helped me with, and I looking, back, I see it very much today, is she she helped me find my voice in this world. Aliza's death left a gaping hole in her community in hundreds of hearts. Her children's lives are defined by the loss, and they must grapple with a new definition of family. Jan and Mary, along with several other friends of Aliza's, are considered surrogate moms by both Jen and Jason. Mike and I, too, feel like we've been welcomed as family members over the years. We've covered the story. Still, I wish I could have met Aliza before all of this. I wish I could have just 10 minutes with her to hear her voice, sense her aura. I covered the story for the first time on Monday, the day after she died. I remember I interviewed Dr. Goldfarb and later Mary. They were almost poetic talking about Eliza. She seemed too good to be true in some ways. I attended her funeral a few days later and was moved by the shock rippling through this estranged family. About a month later, when I first met Jen, there was a tipping point. In her, I saw myself. We're about the same age. She was struggling like the earth had been pulled out from under her. She was trying to do everything right at a time when nothing seemed right at all. There's no guidebook what to do when your mother is murdered. This was her real life. No one knew what was coming next. And at least from the media side of things, I tried to walk her through what I'd seen before, in police investigations, in courtrooms, how I'd seen victims heal. I lost my own father to cancer in 2015. And at that time in my friendship with Jen, grief became our bond. Though our lives had presented much different circumstances, we were trying to navigate marriage, children, the concept of family, feeling that loss of a parent. I didn't meet Jen until six months after Elisa was murdered. She agreed to talk to the Cleveland Jewish News, her first interview with the news outlet. I asked for and was granted the assignment. Jen met with me at the CJN offices. 
during our hour or so together, she answered every question I asked, and in vivid detail. It felt like an immediate and implicit trust had been built. It was almost tangible, and it's hard not to believe it was somehow Elisa's divine guidance. Jen poured herself into telling me every detail that night her mother was killed and what she'd experienced since. And I felt called to share that story and every story I wrote about Elisa after that as faithfully, carefully, and accurately as I could. If I was to help this woman whose life was irrevocably changed, or if I could serve the justice for Elisa cause in any way, it was through being the best journalist I could be. After that six-month anniversary article, the way I approach stories changed. Stories like that, tragedies like this one, and people like the ones I've gotten to know along the way will do that. And now, 10 years later, this story continues to change me and my relationship to it. Like Sarah, I wish I'd met Elisa, but by way of reporting for this podcast, I feel closer to her like I was snacking at her kitchen counter on a Saturday afternoon or received one of her thoughtful gifts. I suspect you might feel the same way now that you've listened to episode one. In our next episode, Sarah and I will revisit the day all of that and so much more was taken away. March 24th, 2013. Aliza, Her Story at 10 Years, is produced by the Cleveland Jewish News. Executive producers are Kevin S. Edelstein and Jennifer Sherman. Today's episode was produced by Mike Butts, Amanda Kane, Deanna McKeegan, Cheryl Sadler, and me, Sarah Shookman. It was edited by Amanda Kane and Deanna McKeegan and written by Mike Butts and me. Special thanks to Adam Freed, Jessa Hockman, Tracy Porter, and Jennifer Sherman. Cover art design by Bella Bendo and Jessica Simon. Our theme music is Particles by Nobu. Additional music in this episode is by Tamuz Dekel, Alain Peretz, and Palm Blue. The reward for information leading to Elisa Sherman's killer stands at $100,000, the largest reward in the history of Crime Stoppers of Cuyahoga County. Anyone with information regarding Elisa Sherman's murder should contact Crime Stoppers at 216 252 7463 or 25crime.com. That's 25crime.com. Callers can remain anonymous and are eligible to receive a cash reward if the information given leads to an arrest or grand jury indictment of a felony offender. To learn more or support the Eliza Sherman Fund, visit give.ccf.org slash Eliza Sherman Fund. To read more about Elisa's story and listen to other episodes in this series, visit cjn.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.